Hello, podcast fans and loyal listeners. Welcome once again to Booth One, our adventures in the art of lively conversation. I am your host, Gary Zabinski, and as always, we're coming to you from our studios on the sunny shores of Evanston, Illinois, just north of the great city of Chicago. This this is one of my favorite times of year, the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. The streets, they're bustling with shoppers and protesters. The holiday decorations are on full display. There's a The protesters are ripping them down. <laughs> social gatherings and good food and drink, and there's the promise or threat, if you look at it that way, of snow in the air. And straight from sitting on Santa's lap, here's my friend and co-host, jolly old St. Roscoe. How are you, sir? <laughs> Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said previously that there is no place like Chicago at Christmas time. Do you still agree that that's true this year? I do. Chicago Chicago is the most beautiful city at Christmas. Now, you spent some time on Thanksgiving in some smaller towns like, well, DeKalb, Illinois, for instance. Sandwich. Earlville. Earlville. How are they decorated for Christmas? Are they festive? Are the downtown oh. streets? <sighs> Holy cow. I was in downtown Sandwich, Illinois the day after Thanksgiving, having dinner with my mother. We were the only people at the nice restaurant in downtown Sandwich, which, which seems to change hands every 18 months. They, they collapse into bankruptcy, and then some poor schlub moves out there and thinks they're <laughs> going to make a killing selling five-layer lasagna and sandwich. Do they Illinois. keep changing the cuisine? Yes, it's now, it's now an Italian restaurant. What did it used to be, Mexican or no, Chinese? No, it was, or it was, was it you know, standard American cuisine. Diner food diner type f- stuff. At, you know, the kind of place where the prime rib is... Be you know not not even prime nine ninety nine for all you it's can nine ninety nine and if you complain about the mash and I said to the mashed potatoes are these are these uh, powdered mashed potatoes well of course why yes they are sir yes they are we we only serve the <laughs> finest powdered <laughs> mashed think, potatoes do you think we have time to actually boil in mashed potatoes <laughs> but but no the point is we were sitting in the restaurant looking looking out basically at nothing because there's nothing in Sandwich, Illinois. And I, I think there was one woebegone wreath hanging from a lamppost, and that was the extent of the Christmas decorations. Well, even here in Evanston, we have wreaths on the lampposts, and they're lighted, and they, they spend a little bit of money. They're the same decorations every year, but they're good about putting them up. One thing they did put up last week, and they had a tree lighting ceremony, was the Christmas tree in Fountain Square, which is just a couple of blocks from here. Well, it, it, the lights, they don't go all the way to the top. There's giant holes where light strings should be. They're those big fat lights, too, uh, you know, just, just giant ones. And clearly, they took virtually no time. It's as if they took a, just lassoed them and threw them up on the tree and didn't put light them up as they were putting them up. It's it's. It's the worst-looking Christmas tree really? in, Evanston. in America. I can't, I, I, in Evanston, wow. yeah, I can't believe it. I mean, you'd think if they could do one thing really, really well, it would be that. I, well, I, and, and today, when I was, I was galumphing through my neighborhood, and I, the Lill Street Art Gallery is down the street from where I live, which is a, where you can take classes in ceramics and metal smithing and, you know, whatever misbegotten notion people have of making a living doing <laughs> art. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to go buy a kiln and make a living. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of a popular destination and lots of little stores and gives people hope and, and outlet. And I walked by and they had a little lighting display outside. This was absolutely inexplicable to me. And a sign up that said, this seasonal lighting display is here to inspire good feelings for the season 
so God forbid that we say Christmas or Hanukkah or announce that it's really a holiday, but let's just sort of say sideways that we should all feel happy because it's winter and the holidays. And then it said, brought to you by Glade. Glade, like Glade air fresheners. fresheners. <laughs> so so the, the Little Street Art Galleries is pimping for Glade now. Or they're letting say, the Glade people come in and do Say Christmas. to me again what that sign said, as if you were wishing that to me. This lovely display of seasonal lighting is meant to inspire feelings of hope and happiness this season of joy. And I would say, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not Christmas, not Thanksgiving, not Hanukkah, not Kwanzaa. Speaking of Christmas trees, have you been downtown to see the Millennium Park Christmas tree this year? Were you at the, uh, were you at the lighting, which was last I week? was not. Talk about a beautifully lit tree. It is gorgeous, gorgeous looking. Uh, I wasn't pleased with the tree when it was just standing there by itself mm-hmm. without any lights on it. I thought it was an odd shape. It looked like a missile and not like a Christmas tree mm-hmm. to a cool shape. Now it looks fantastic. Wow. It's supposed to be a kind of a warm winter this year, warm-ish. Warm-ish Have you read that because of El the, Nino, uh, yes. Because of what? El Nino. Is that that's going to help? The ocean a, waters are warm, so the... the the ocean waters are warm, and they're 3,000 miles away, and for some reason that means we won't have snow. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Skilling, local weatherman. <laughs> I'm a climatologist. Well, and the, the lake is still warm. It, it the, is. The lake is still, the water is still in the 50s. I hear it's going to be above average temperatures, but also above average precipitation. Mm. I have to correct something I said on a couple of podcasts ago, and this goes back to this Christmas tree that is now in the, well, the holiday tree. Maybe I should call it the holiday Let's tree. Let's call it the holiday tree. Let's call it the seasonal tree <laughs> of good, happy feelings. And joy. And joy. <laughs> it's sitting there in Millennium Park. We are, we're both in agreement that that was a pretty cool place to move right. it to. I have to correct something. I said on a podcast a couple of times ago that you will be able to see this tree from the Ferris wheel at Navy Pier. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth. First of all, you are correct. They have dismantled the Ferris wheel at Navy Pier. They're moving it farther up the pier, and they're rebuilding it. Secondly, you you can't see Navy Pier from that portion of the park. I read this somewhere, and I just believed it. I thought you were going to do a retraction about that cockamamie story you told about how it's very likely that there could be sharks in the Mississippi River. Oh, I will never retract a shark story. Ever. Ever? I, I, those are highly researched. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of sharks, yesterday there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney, Australia, saying we've got to stop this pussyfooting around and having scientists and oceanographers tell us that, oh, sharks are just as afraid of you as you are of them. They're not looking to attack people. They're not trying to bite you. They just get confused. So it's all just a misunderstanding. Well, he's saying that that's a lot of BS. <laughs> that he's saying it's personal. And, and he saw a shark once, a, like an eight-foot, nine-foot tiger shark, and he thought the shark was looking at him with an appraising eye, and the line, line of its mouth gave it a perky, roguish look. Not savage, even hostile, but speculative and unsettling in the manner of a stranger eyeing off passersby at the entrance to a dark alley. Wow. <laughs> I know. And, 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 his, and, and in his anthropomorphic 
take uh, a, a, like a cockney stranger, perhaps with a fin on the back of his vinyl jacket and a tendency to say things like, hello, what are we here? <laughs> so he's, he, and he's from Australia. Every fatality that he's investigated was characterized not by mistaken bites or by any sort of nuzzling, but by what actual witnesses described as the deadly intent of large, hungry, great white sharks. He thinks they're hungry. He thinks they see something. They're completely godless killing machines. And if they see you, they will go after you. And they don't, they don't care if you're a human being. This, they, they would prefer that you're a human being. This, they would they, prefer. I think they like to hear humans scream. In the ocean, no one can hear you scream. Well, just for the few nanoseconds that your head's above water, you're going, oh, for the love of God, help! Ah! Gurgle, gurgle, what would gurgle. help, is he's saying, is to end this soothing BS and uh, call an attack an attack. Kill off the bee sting analogies, which some experts say, well, if you're going to go in a habitat where there's bees, you're probably going to get stung. Hire tabloid sub-editors to compose big signs at popular beaches warning people that they risk being brutally torn apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this guy. His name is Frank Robson, and he writes for the Sydney Morning News. He just wants people to know that sharks are I, I, fully I intentional. They, I thought they didn't like the taste of humans. They didn't really like eating people. Yeah, but how do they know that? You know, they don't go to clubs and say, hey, did you try any uh, people? Yeah, they, I they, tried they it. It's it, not yeah, good. They don't know like until chicken. they bite into exactly. it. Exactly. And, go, and by oh, then, wow, it's, like, it's probably too late. Yeah, it's like eating rhubarb. Oh, I'm never going to, you know, ick. I'm sure they'll, like, bite you in half, and then, you know, they'll swim away a quarter of a mile, and they go, Oh, my God. I'm never eating one of those again. Something that is in the Chicago news in terms of performing arts, Million Dollar Quartet, which has been a long-running musical here at the Apollo Theater, small, little, nice place, beautiful theater. They put a lot of money into it. Uh, Million Dollar Quartet is going to be closing after eight years. We do not tend to have long-running shows here in Chicago anymore. Why would it be important that we do? Do you remember when we had shows like Forever Plaid was running forever? Sheer Madness was running forever? These would be, and, and, and you know, Million Dollar Quartet running for eight years. These would be shows that tourists would be drawn to to come to Chicago because they could plan on actually a show being there. Do you think there's we should have more long-running, sit-down productions of things in Chicago? Is that, is that something that you would be a proponent well, it's of? it's not of interest to me. I mean, I could barely get through a million-dollar... What's it called? Million dollar, <laughs> billion dollar baby quartet. <laughs> million. I could barely get through that show once. Blue Man Group has been playing the Briar Street Theater my entire life. You know, move these things out. Move other things in. The difference was you had a lot of sit-down shows in the loop. You know, the original production of The Music Man ran for a year. The Seven Year Itch ran for, <laughs> going back many years. Yeah, but, I was going to say. But you would have <laughs> tours like that of major shows that would run for years. Years ago. So, so in my adult life, the, I, the only thing I can think of that ran for longer than a year in Chicago was Wicked, which ran actually for several years in downtown Chicago. Well, Phantom of the Opera. That ran for like two and a half years. Here in Chicago? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. okay. Originally. Yeah. But, I mean, but so, so what? So I don't get to see Million Dollar Baby again or Million Dollar Quartet. <laughs> <laughs> Boo hoo. Here's someone who doesn't look or sound like Elvis Presley or Roy Orbison or Johnny Cash. 
they don't look like them, they don't sound like them, but they're going to sing their songs, and it's the one time that they were together, and I'm half drunk, so I don't care because it's good enough, and I don't have to think too hard, and it's not Shakespeare, and I'm from Rochelle, so I'm happy. But don't you think if, like, say, that Water Tower Place theater, that Broadway theater at the Water Tower Place, ill-fated, there's always Ill-fit something, can't beg people to something come to terrible show. There going on in there. Don't you think that if that had something fun and really well done, don't you think that that would be a great tourist draw for people coming to Chicago other than just shopping along Michigan Avenue? Don't we have enough tourists? Do I have to worry about tourists? Can I just worry about myself? You don't want this to become a New York in terms of a theater town is what you're saying. Well, I think it is. But, you know, I want to see new and different things. See if you have shows clogging up theaters. Well, you'll always have shows coming and going. But we're talking about a handful of things that could be a, a base for being here. Like, and mm. like I said, shows that I've mentioned, Sheer Madness. We uh, saw Sheer Madness, didn't we, in the painted over basement of the Chicago Theater some years ago when they were trying to make the basement of the Chicago Theater a going we, venue? We did. Boy, was that a big mistake. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, something like, like one of the reasons the revival of Chicago has been running on Broadway for 17 years. It doesn't cost anything. There are no sets, minimal costumes. This is a a perfect point, yeah. So you could do, why don't you do Chicago at the Chicago Water Tower Place? I know. The Fantastics. The Fantastics. All you need is like a clothesline and a trunk. Broadway in Chicago has quite the schedule coming up. And in relation to this long-running show, I was a little taken aback by the fact that beautiful and fun home and Matilda are, have such small, limited runs at Broadway in Chicago. Do they? And they've got other bookings afterwards, so it's not, as, it's not even as if they can extend. Yeah. They're just going to do their thing, and then they're off to St. Louis or Detroit or Des Moines or whatever their next town is. I, I, that made me kind of sad. I mean, we are Chicago. We should have sit-down shows like this. Yeah, I, we need somebody on to explain the the economics of this. But I, you know, I think you know they bring in a show like Beautiful, and it's like, well, we have to sell. You know, what are those seats? Theater seat, two thousand twenty five hundred people. Mm. So you're going to sell a ticket in the last row of the balcony that you probably would not have sold if it was playing for a month or two or three. Mm, yeah. And speaking of shows on the road, did you read the reviews of the Sherlock Holmes show that just opened? Oh. It's at the Oriental, which is a... Giant house. Giant house. Wicked played there for years with, with David Arquette. Yes. I, I've never read worse reviews. What did they say? He said, this is not <laughs> worth coming to. Do not buy a ticket. Oh, my God. Not only is it the worst idea, but it's also poorly executed, So, and nothing about it makes sense. I did skim the Tribune review where it said that um, people apparently left in droves at the intermission. Droves. Droves. Have you uh, heard about the new musical theater talk show coming out of New York? Isn't that us? I would have thought it was. I thought it would be called Booth One. No, the City Center Encores people, uh, they stage revivals of rarely seen Broadway shows. You've probably seen Mm. one or two Mm -hmm. of them. They're partnering with um, the Green Space at WNYC radio station in New York to create a new talk show about musical theater. The series is going to be called City Center Encores Unscripted and consists of three talks and performances uh, that will be streamed live online, so we'll be able to hear it. Wow. And later made available as videos and podcasts. And among the guests are bold-faced names of Broadway, like Sheldon Harnick 
and Jason Robert Brown, who wrote Parade, and Leslie Odom Jr., who's in Hamilton. So uh, Jack Vertel, is, uh, he's the artistic director of Encores. He's going to host the thing. And it begins December 14th, so very, very soon. The first one is going to be called Sexism, Racism, Show Tunes, Discuss. <laughs> wow. Now, why didn't we think of that? I don't know. And it's going to be an unsentimental look at Broadway's golden age and its conflicting heritage of innocence and what would now be considered offensive attitude towards sex and race. And Sheldon Harnick is going to be part of that, along with Janine Tesori, who was the composer of, again, the aforementioned Fun Fun Home. Home. The second one is going to be called Keeping Score, and that's going to be about musical theater composers, posterity, and restoring lost compositions. That sounds really good. Speakers will include the orchestrator Jonathan Tunick, longtime collaborator with Stephen Sondheim. And the series will conclude on March 4th. So they're going to do one just about every six weeks uh, with a talk about musical theater as a form of biography. And it's going to be called Who Tells Their Stories? Historical Narratives on Broadway. Michael Friedman, composer of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, just a few years ago on Broadway, will be there along with Mr. Odom. Uh, And as I mentioned, he plays uh, Aaron Burr in Hamilton. I think these are going to be cool. And I can't wait to hear them. Do we really want to promote the competition, Gary? Well, Think about this. What, what, what can you do? We're, we're not, we're not going to stomp the City Center Encore series with we, our, we with our little bu- podcast. Did you hear about Leslie Odom and Liza Minnelli? Did you hear about this recently? Well, there's, let, those, mm. two, those are two performers I'd never hear, well, never let, thought I'd hear let, mentioned Les, in the same Leslie sentence. Leslie Odom from Hamilton was interviewed on one of the evening talk shows, and they, they were asked about celebrities coming to Hamilton. And there was, there was some confusion as to whether he was actually talking about Hamilton or another show that he had been in at some time. And he said, oh, yes, Liza Minnelli showed up and she reeked of marijuana and was glassy-eyed. No. Yes. And everyone in the audience found this very amusing until Liza Minnelli issued a statement the next day saying, I've never met Mr. Odom. I have not seen Hamilton, nor do I smoke marijuana. <laughs> So, so it was just a, a made-up story. So it was a random Liza Minnelli look-alike in the audience. Well, or no, it, or 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 it could have. It, they said it was somewhat confusing because he he they were talking about celebrities coming specifically to Hamilton or what's it like when there is a celebrity in the audience. So his out could have been that he was actually talking not about when he was in Hamilton but when he was in something else. But, uh, you know, for the love of God, Liza Minnelli is nearly 70 years old and half dead. You don't go on TV and talk about how she shows up at shows reeking of pot and glassy eyes. That's just, that's sacrilegious almost. I thought it was mean. <laughs> it's a little, it's a it's, little it's, mean it's spirit. It's mean, but it's kind of fun to imagine and think about. <laughs> we talked a little bit uh, the last podcast about your personal experience out of you from the bridge and how you enjoyed that show immensely the reviews came out and they were beyond stupendous i was a little chagrined to read that they're playing to well below capacity audiences however isn't that crazy i think it's something in the 60 some percentile well this goes back to something we've talked about that that less reviews matter less and less now so this show could not have gotten better reviews. The greatest rave I've ever seen in the New York Times. Yet it's not filling the house. No. That wouldn't have happened 10 or 20 years ago. No, sad. But also, this is also the third major revival of that show in the last 20 years. Maybe the last 18 years. 
And and, and it is, is uh, yes, that. It's also two hours with no intermission. It's been said that it is an emotional roller coaster, uh, um, uh, deeply, deeply affecting. And as you said, and have said many times, why do I go to the theater? To be entertained. To be entertained. However, every once in a while, one should go to the theater to be moved and enlightened. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's entertaining. I, you know, it's it's um, extremely suspenseful. You're on the edge of your seat. Tourists aren't going, probably. Tourists aren't going because it's again, it's a British cast that no one has heard of. My bartender at my hotel said, "Why are they doing that play? I feel like I just saw it yesterday." It'd be as if they revived Gypsy next year. Well, my, for the love of God, how many how many times in a lifetime must I sit through Gypsy? Tourists are also not going to Dames at Sea. Uh-oh. which has announced its closing at the <laughs> tiny little Helen Hayes Theater. But guess what's going in there? The Humans. The Humans. Yes, the show that you saw, we, we discussed, uh, going into the lovely Helen Hayes. I think that's a perfect house for yes. it, not having seen the show, but having read about it, I think it's going to be a good fit, don't you? I, oh, I don't know. It's a, you know it's a, One of the problems with where it's playing now, it's a two-story set, and a lot happens upstairs. And what I've heard is if you're on the sides you're too, or you're too close, they're looking at the actors from their, their knees up on the second floor. Perhaps they'll they re- can't, or they can't, there, there are times when people don't realize that there's someone on stage and they think they're off stage talking. It's just, it's not, does not fit well into its current space. Perhaps they'll recast it with shorter actors. Perhaps they'll cast very... And lower, and lower the ceiling. Yes. So yeah. they'll and be playing Maybe in they can play a with five, the set. A five-foot basement. But again, that, you know, mark my words. That show's going to move over with Reed. Reed Bernie is not going to sell tickets. No. You know, I'm sure it'll get great reviews when it moves over. And then who's going to go to the Helen Hayes Theater to see nobodies when you can see Al Pacino reading his lines off of a monitor down the street? Speaking of Al Pacino, by the time our podcast listeners hear this episode, a number of these things will have happened already. It just Mm. takes that amount of time to turn these around. But China Dahl the David Mamet play starring Al Pacino opens this week after a two-week or so delay mm-hmm. for rewrites, they say. Uh, also, School of Rock will open at the end of the week. The Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Well, much music with Andrew Lloyd Webber. The Color Purple opens soon, um, another week and a half or something like that. Now, you saw The Color Purple. Do you think that that's going to do well in the press? Has that been doing well in uh, ticket sales? Yes, it has been selling very well, I believe. And again, I'm not a big fan of the... I think the, the book was whitewashed and the characters were whitewashed and everything's simplified and evil people are made less evil. I'm not a big fan of the adaptation. But in, I think in this version, you mean? Uh, the, no, I think oh, for, the, for, the, for the musical adaptation. From the book. From the book. I but see. I think this production is about as good as you can get. And I think the... Um, the leading actress is fantastic. I think Jennifer Hudson. I think all of the cast does a great job. Jennifer Hudson. Jennifer Tony Hudson. Tony Award. Uh, I don't think it's a flashy enough role. I think she has some competition. Could could be could be. I saw a very early preview, so if she's able to ramp it up a little. And there, but you know, it's not it's not the most exciting role in the world. You mentioned the earpieces on Broadway with Al Pacino. Yes. And we had a long discussion about them with Bruce Willis. Misery opened mm. last week, and he did not fare very well in the press, I think, pretty much across the board. Right. Uh, on the other hand, the show got just sort of 50-50 reviews, and I think that Laurie Medcalf may, in fact, have saved 
some of that uh, show. No. He ought to be giving her 50% of his salary. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, they, they write about her as if she's brilliantly talented, just as if that's a given. And they say that he appears to be somewhat comatose on stage, <laughs> that he's practically yeah. asleep. Yeah. The only other show that's opening before Christmas this year is Fiddler on the Roof, which I'm assuming you have not seen. I have not seen. hadn't started previews. That opens just a few days before Christmas, but uh, it's, a bu- it's a busy December. That's a lot of yeah, openings for yeah. December. And the word I of think. mouth is interesting on Fiddler. Some people are really loving it. And Danny Bernstein, he's trying to do something different with the role, trying yeah. to ratchet it in and not do so much of a cartoon character hmm. version. And Jessica hmm. Hecht, who's an extremely mannered, extremely mannered actress. There's <laughs> interesting ways of chopping up her words and yes. delivery yes. is Golda. And uh, apparently they're, they're great together. Tony's definitely moving back to the Beacon Theater this year. Uh, I read that the Broadway League has decided to just go there after yeah. searching for alternate spaces, which they didn't find. Thank goodness they did not move to Brooklyn. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> that, Live from Brooklyn. That would have been bad. Um, hey, do you, you like bacon? <laughs> Speaking of non sequitur. Yes. I do, in fact. Speaking of Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> speaking speaking like of bacon. a big piece of ham on stage. Yeah, well, the three most dangerous activities in the world, according to a website called Bacon Salt, are underwater cage fighting with great white sharks, bungee jumping into a live volcano, and cooking bacon while naked. <laughs> <laughs> These two guys, Justin and Dave, they created a company called Bacon Salt, two regular guys. It all started with a dream to make everything taste like bacon. And Dave's three-year-old son submitted a video to America's Funniest Home Videos and won $5,000 of a video hitting Dave in the face with a wiffle ball. (laughs) They took this $5,000 and they started this company, and the first thing they made was bacon salt. It's like salt that you you shake on anything, everything, and it makes it taste like bacon. Bacon flavored seasoning was more immense than they could possibly have imagined. In five days, they sold all 6,000 jars that they had initially made. And they have a website, jdfoods.net. And they work out of their garage without spending a dime on marketing or advertising. And more food products that they thought could taste like bacon bacon pop, microwave popcorn, baconaise, mayonnaise tasting like bacon. Wow bacon ranch dressing, and dip mix. And then they came up with some novelty products. And this is where the bacon cooking armor comes in. They've created some bacon-scented underwear. Oh, dear. (laughs) And pillows and more. And they've created this underwear that's made of fire-retardant or resistant material. And you wear it when you're cooking bacon naked in the morning. (laughs) I wanted to give a shout out to Justin and Dave for their creativity uh, I, I, and jdfoods.net. I may have to get you that bacon we, underwear. We, no, I, well, you need to get me some bacon salt because I was thinking how fantastic that would be on popcorn. With bacon underwear, don't you think all the dogs in the neighborhood would be chasing you yes. all the time? Yes. Well, how long could a scent stay in clothing or pillows? Well, maybe they sell some sort of spray where you can reactivate the scent. 
I went somewhere this past week, uh, and I was going to invite you, but then it was sort of on a work day, and it was difficult, for, you know, to work out schedules. I went to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus at the United Center. What? Yes. By yourself? By myself. Oh my god! I just thought, you know, it's in town. It comes into oh, town. This is every the last year. time to see the elephants. It comes into town every year. They shut. You know, it goes into the United Center so that the basketball and hockey teams have to vacate and go on long extended road trips. It's there for like two weeks. And I said, you know, these tickets aren't going to be very expensive. I think I'll go. And I've been reading about the Asian elephants and how they're going to retire the Asian elephants to their mm. reserve and compound in Sarasota, Florida. They're going to take them off the road and. This is one of the shows here called Circus Extreme, uh, where the elephants feature prominently. They're not in every version around the country. So I decided I would go. Now, recently, in the last few months, we went to see uh, Cirque du Soleil, which is a whole different kind of experience, up close and very much about the performers themselves. But I will have to say that this Ringling Brothers show, there's a reason they call it the greatest show on earth. It was absolutely thrilling from beginning to end. I bought this big box of popcorn and I just kept shoving it in my mouth while I'm watching. I, I was like a little kid in a candy store. That's it was masterfully done. They would distract you by the, with the clowns on one area and then the next thing you know, you'd look over and they'd have set up a ring and there'd be seven camels with girls riding on the humps and doing gymnastics. But at the beginning of the show, just like in a traditional circus, they do the big circus parade where all the performers come out and all the dancers come out and they go around the entire ring and there's music playing and there's singing and there's juggling and they brought the elephants out right at the end with everybody on stage. I, well, I, I was all choked up. Oh, there were seven of them in this big, long line, and they went right past me. I had a fourth-row seat. Then later in the show, they do their own act, and it, 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 was, it was phenomenal. It was, it was absolutely tremendous. And did the elephants seem unhappy to you? The elephants seemed like they were having the time of their life, that they lived for performing. They lived to be in front of an audience. They were giant hams. They played to the kids. It, it, it was unbelievable. I had one elephant, was the, which is their oldest elephant. I can't remember her name, but she's 57 years old. Mm. She didn't do too many tricks. She sort of stood off to the side and kind of, if you can imagine an elephant with their, with their <laughs> arms, arms akimbo, arms akimbo. <laughs> watching the youngsters do their tricks, it was fantastic. And I'm sorry you missed it, but uh, I wanted to tell our listeners that if you ever have a chance to see the Ringling Brothers and Barman Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth, and you're like, nah, it's all for kids. Let me assure you, it is not for kids. These are world-class, fantastic performers, and the is, Feld people put on amazing shows. Is, I have no idea. How much does a ticket to the circus cost these days? Well, my ticket was 40 bucks. That's nothing. No, nothing at all. And uh, I was on cloud nine. Oh. One of the finest acts I'd seen, ever seen, is lights come up in the center, and there's this gigantic netted cage, round, huge, right in the middle of the stage. And there is a tamer in there, and he had 16 Bengal tigers no. standing on platforms. Well, I was on the edge of my seat. Those tigers, most of them were pretty cooperative. There were a couple who, 
could easily have taken his, his neck apart in, with one quick swallow. They were gigantic, gigantic and snarling. You could hear them all over the arena. And the lion, well, tiger tamer, he had a microphone on, so you could hear him shouting and giving commands to the tigers and making them jump and lie down and roll over on each other. And they were snarly. They, were, they would yap at him. They, wow. would, would, they, would, they would claw towards him, and he would yell back at them, and he had this little whip. I was I, on the I, edge of my seat. But I will tell you one thing, and this was thrilling. This is another Ross backstory. Years ago, when I was uh, trying to, very young, 32, trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was <laughs> working at uh, George's Restaurant, which we mentioned before, which was behind the Merchandise Mart. And in those days, the circus played at Medina Temple, which is now the Bloomingdale's Furniture Store. Sure. But that's where the circus played. The circus would come to town on the train. And I read about this in the paper. They would have to stop the train before the train station to get the elephants off of the, their cars and then march them down the streets. So one day we're getting ready for lunch, weekday afternoon, and I had a very important job that required a lot of experience and education, and I was Windexing the laminated menus, <laughs> wondering what had become of my life. <laughs> and I glance out the window as we're setting up the restaurant. <laughs> and I said, guys... Guys, guys, come here, come here. And so everyone came running over and we looked out the window and, and they're marching down Kinsey were eight elephants just marching down the street being led from the train tracks to, it was, it was unbelievable, it was like you were hallucinating. There were elephants marching down the street in the middle of downtown Chicago. Yeah, I, I, and they still do this. There was definitely evidence of the elephants having walked around the oh, outside really? of the United Center without question. They hadn't cleaned up yet? They hadn't cleaned up that day. Wow. Yeah. But it's thrilling, and I really, really would recommend that you go if you can. It was fantastic. Well, you've sold it. I mean, you made, you made that sounded much more exciting than you know, sitting through a view from the bridge. There is nothing like There is the nothing like thing. an old-fashioned circus. Oh, man. Clowns, acrobats, dancing as, girls. As I said, it is definitely the greatest show on earth. Let's talk about the reaction that you got at the box office when you walked up and said, hi, do you have a single for today? I bought online. I was anonymous online. Did the ticket taker take pity on you? I just think it's kind of weird going to the circus by yourself. It felt a little weird, but, you know, I was kind of doing it for a little research. I All have right. a fascination with, with the circus and circus world, and as you know, I, I've been interested in a circus story for a number of years yeah. about a very, very famous aerialist back from the, uh, the teens and 20s of this mm. past century, probably the most famous circus performer in history, Lillian Leitzel. So I, I well, went to do, do a little ho- bit of research. You do host a podcast about entertainment. I do. Yeah. So I felt that this would fall right in the category of what, what we talk about. In the past, Roscoe, we've given away gift cards to a couple of restaurants, The Gage yes. and Acanto, yes. both owned by the same person. He has another restaurant called The Dawson, which we are going to be offering a $100 gift card to as well. It is not right downtown, but it is a short cab ride. It is a different menu than the other two. A couple of things that are on their menu that I thought looked fantastic. One of their appetizers is a Moroccan spiced lamb chili, which actually sounds pretty good. (laughs) How about this? You you might enjoy this, Roscoe. Chicken fried six-ounce lobster. 
Ooh. You know, you put it in the, the fried chicken batter, and I'm sure they, they <sighs> then dump it in the deep fryer. I bet that's fryer. delicious. It sounds fantastic. And something, we were talking to one of the managers of The Gage the other night, and he told us about this new chef who's there who is definitely ratcheting up the menu. His name is Sean King. It's going to be a less cocktail-driven kind of place, which it has been in the past, and have a better menu. So they're trying to drive it a a bit more Mm food-oriented. One of the things that he's putting on the menu is a whole fish broiled, but served with taco fixings. So you have the whole fish, and then you can take it apart and make your own tacos. I guess it's like fajitas. Oh, cool. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes. So this is at the Dawson. Sean King is the executive chef. Uh, We're going to be offering a gift certificate to that. You need to go to our website, which is www.boothone.com, and sign up for our mailing list or subscribe to us. And I let me read that to you all again. It's www.booth-one.com. That's booth-one.com. Those dashes are so important, aren't they? We're also on Facebook, and you can find us there. But if you go to our website and sign up for our mailing list, you can be chosen in our drawing for a $100 gift card to the Dawson. And you can have yourself a whole fish of tacos or some chicken fried lobster. I'm going to give you some chicken fried lobster. <laughs> if, you can, if you can elbow Roscoe out of the way. I had a Booth One experience recently, Roscoe, that I'm just going to share with you very briefly. We went to a play here in Chicago at a very small theater called A Red Orchid Theater, which has been around for many years. And we saw a play called Pilgrim's Progress, written by one of their ensemble members and directed by one of their ensemble members. Why did I go to this? Well, I went because it was starring one of the original founders of A Red Orchid Theater, Uh, The fine, fine actor Michael Shannon, who was nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Revolutionary Road. And many of our listeners might recognize him from Boardwalk Empire. Well, we went. uh, Our producer has known him for many, many years. And we went and saw the play and saw Michael Shannon. Let me just say this. Like all good, wonderful film actors, he has a big head. (laughs) <laughs> you know how it just looks great on camera yeah. for some reason. He has a big head. He has these classic looks about him. There's a certain chiseled quality to him. I mean, I'm not, you know, he's not, he's not George Clooney handsome. Right. But he is ruggedly handsome. He's just got a look about him. I will say that something you and I have talked about in the past, when he's on stage there is some sort of it quality going on. You can't deny it. You can't look away. Even if you didn't know who this guy was from Adam and you walked into this play cold and sat there and watched it, you would say, that guy's going to be a star. The performances, and there were, it's a four-character play, they were wonderful across the board. All four of them were great. But there's something particular about Michael Shannon and being just in his presence. And this is a theater that's about as big as this room that we're in. You know, you're right up on top. There's 70 seats. You're right up on top of the actors. So have you ever, have you ever seen Michael Shannon on stage? Yes, I have. And I was struggling to remember the name of the show. Show that was done on Broadway a couple of years ago. Not a new script. It had never been done on Broadway stage before. Wasn't it And it was with Paul Rudd. It's called Grace. Grace. It doesn't begin with a murder and then it goes back in time. And? Not a good script. But you're right. He has, there's just that, 
that extra little it quality that's something that draws the eye and makes you pay attention to that actor who seems to possess something that you're trying to look at and figure out what it is that's, you know, you're trying to figure out what, what's happening between his ears and his eyes and what he's thinking. Well, we talked with Michael Shannon after the show. He was kind enough. Well, we hung around pretty long. He was kind enough to come down from his dressing room and say hi to us and uh, offer us a few words. I did not get a chance to really interview him. I'm still working on possi- that possibility while he's in town. Are there other actors, actresses and actors that you have seen recently who had that same quality? I'm thinking like maybe a... Does, does Jennifer Hudson have that quality on stage? Is she one of those people you can't stop watching? Well, I, I think Jennifer Hudson did just because she's a star, so we were all waiting for her to, you know, it's some period of time before she comes on stage. I will say the guy who starred in A View from the Bridge, you never took your eyes from him. Although I will say that that, that was a magnificently cast show, and, and everyone seemed ideally perfectly cast for the role they were playing, and, and everyone just held their own on stage. You know, we talked about this Mothers and Sons is going to be done, and I saw that a few years ago with Tyne Daly. She, she's the consummate actress, because what, what the essence of acting is watching actors make decisions on stage and having realizations. Oh, my God, you've pulled out a knife. But, you know, you, you, you look at their eyes to see what is the actor thinking, what's, what's, what are they processing, what's going through their head. And I was that way with Tyne Daly, the entire show, thing. What is, what's going to come out of her mouth here? What's she thinking? How is she reacting to what this man just said or what just happened on stage? Mm. <laughs> Sandy Dennis was fond of wearing sunglasses on stage, which is a fatal mistake <laughs> because, you know, the eyes are the windows to your soul. Indeed. Perhaps we've spoken of Sandy Dennis and her son. You you dislike her. Intent. I dis- you disliked like her. Sandy Dennis. Yeah. yeah. When I when I was working on the national tour of Phantom of the Opera for many years, we had a we had an actress who was um, she was playing Christine Daae at some performances, and she had beautiful beautiful voice, and she looked great for the part. Just the gore- she could sing like a songbird. She had an unfortunate habit of, as she got to sort of some of her high notes, she would close her eyes, like enjoying the high note. In my role as, as the production stage manager, part of my job was to maintain the performances in between visits from the production manager and Hal Prince and whatnot. I'd be watching it from the front of the house or I'd get a house seat and I'd be watching the show and I began to feel like, why, why, am, I, why am I disengaged from this actress? I like her. She's a good actress. She's a beautiful singer. She looks perfect for it. I close her. I mean, everything about it, her performance was just, it's just perfect. And yet, I, I felt like I could never really connect with her and could not really get to know this character and I didn't, took me the longest time to try to figure it out. Finally, one day I'm watching, and I realized that every time she closed her eyes, I disconnected. I just went somewhere else, just for those few seconds, and then I'd have to work, or she'd have to work to get me back. And I finally decided I was going to bring this up to her, because she's a pretty seasoned actress, you know, she knew what she was doing, but I think that she was unconscious about it. She just never realized that she was doing it. So I I got her sat down once and I said, I have something, it's kind of hard for me to tell you, but you aware that you do this? She's like, no. 
And I said, well, you do. And here are the five or six or seven places that I've noticed where you do it rather consistently. And you take us out of the, your performance. We drift away. I, I, I said to her, have you, ever watched, have you ever watched a movie really closely and looked at like the close-up scenes you know, the, or the reaction shot of someone? I said, watch, watch, a, watch a film, especially an old film, an old black and white film. There will be whole minutes that go by while the camera is on someone's face, and they never blink. They don't blink. Not only do they not close their eyes, they don't blink while it's going on because they know that the camera sees right into those eyes. And I said, it's not really any different for us in the theater. Well, she was, first of all, a little mortified about it and then realized that it was true. I think she went off and decided to sing some of her role and realized that she did close her eyes all the time. Next time she was on, she made a very, very conscious choice to keep her eyes wide open. I said, keep them as wide as you possibly want, even, you know, like deranged wide. Trust me, it'll read just fine off the stage. So she began to do that, and I began to love her more and more and more every time she had a performance. It's funny you should say this thing about eyes are the windows to the soul. They especially are when you're on camera, and they certainly are when you're on stage, especially if you can see into the performer's eyes. I'll be curious. We're going to see uh, we're going to see an opera at the Lyric uh, in a, in a week or so. We're going to see the world premiere of Bel Canto, which is the opera based on the best-selling novel. I'll be curious to see what those opera singers do with their eyes. And and also when you're when you're going through when you're going to a, for a high note, of course you want to shut your eyes because the last thing you want to see is someone in the second row going. <laughs> making a face when you when you fail to land the note. So part of it's it's a defense mechanism. Right. You know, I can I can focus on the note better if my eyes are closed. Right. I remember doing a show years ago where I thought we had a a, a woman who wandered in and out of the show and had a few numbers to do and I thought she was marvelous and my friend said you know, my god did she just fall off the turnip truck? You don't shut your eyes on stage when you sing. Well, she thought she thought she was being dramatic, and instead she was yeah, closing. Well, yes, that's it. Denying the and, audience the ability uh, to see what she was. As feeling. you say, I just think that I'm, sometimes it's it becomes an unconscious choice. It's a crutch. It just, yeah. it just happens, and until someone points it out, you know, you don't realize it. But I also think you know we we talk about you and I were both drama majors. I think something like that is fundamental. They should have taught that in one hundred and one theater instead of making making me start by reading out of say, hey, you know what, Ross. When you're going to be in a musical in a month from now, keep your eyes open on stage. You mean in that small Midwestern uh, college downstate Illinois that no one has ever heard of? That's right. That yes, one that we yes. went to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. We mentioned this last week, and I'm just going to mention it again. Some people have begun to send us their Booth One experiences, either sitting in a booth in a Booth One or at a Booth One experience. And uh, they send us their pictures on Facebook or they uh, send it to our website. I think you can post things on our website. I'm not really very good at that kind of thing, but I'm sure many of our listeners That's why we have producers. But please keep sharing that with us. The more we get, the more we're going to compile those and we're going to put them up on, on on our site so everyone can see Booth One experiences from all of our people. It's catching on. It's catching. Everybody it is, it is wants catching a Booth on. One experience. Yes. I think so. Booth One is catching on. We need to move forward to our Kiss of Death segment, Roscoe. 
I think you're going to like this one. This is one of my favorites of all time. Is it? It is. I'm like, is it by Marguerite Fox? It is not. This is just a compilation from staff reporters at the Washington Post and a writer named William Grimes at the New York Times. Do you happen to know who Adele Carolyn Morales was? She was an artist and actress who made headlines in 1960, and she died on Sunday in Manhattan. She was 90. When I say Sunday, I mean last Sunday. Was this Norman Mailer's wife? Fidel Mailer. Yes. Uh, in 1960, when her husband, the novelist Norman Mailer, stabbed and seriously wounded her at a drunken party in their apartment. This is the greatest story in the world. This kind of stuff just doesn't happen in the literary world anymore. Imagine if it did over and over. I know. Adele Morales was an aspiring painter in 1951 when she met Mailer. He was the author of The Naked and the Dead, also The Executioner's Song, many, many books. And he was well on his way to becoming recognized as one of the preeminent post-war American novelists. The two began living together and married three years later. The relationship, marked by heavy drinking and ancillary love affairs on both sides, was stormy, to say the least. (laughs) She's quoted as saying, I decided I was going to be that beautiful temptress who ate men alive, flossed her teeth, and spit out the bones, wearing an endless supply of costumes by Fredericks of Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) This is from her memoir, The Last Party, Scenes from My Life with Norman Mailer, which was published in 1997. On the verge of announcing his improbable candidacy for mayor of New York City, uh, Norman Mailer decided to celebrate with a party at their apartment on the Upper West Side. This was on November 19th, 1960. So Norman Mailer decided, I'm I'm so famous, I'm going to run for mayor of New York. I know how to run this place. The guest list was unusual since Norman thought of his natural constituency as the disenfranchised. He invited several strangers right off the street. At the same time, he instructed his friend, George Plimpton, also famous writer, editor of the Paris Review, to summon the city's power elite, uh, handing him a list that included the police and fire commissioners, the banker David Rockefeller, and the Aga Khan, for instance. None of them showed up. Uh, but the party could still be described as glittering with attendees that included the poets Allen Ginsberg and Delmore Schwartz and the actor Tony Franciosa. Talk about obscure yes. actors attending. He'd been married to Shelley Winters. So, with, indeed, with the liquor flowing, it all made for a volatile mix. Drunk and belligerent, Mailer wearing a ruffled matador shirt, reportedly tangled with his guests. Around 4 a.m., he confronted his wife in an incoherent rage. In her memoir, Mrs. Mailer recalled having taunted her husband, bluntly deriding his manhood. (laughs) 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 And making an ugly reference to his mistress, some guests recalled that the point of no return came when she told her husband that he was not as good as Dostoevsky. (laughs) 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 The point of no return. Mailer stabbed her in the stomach with a penknife and in the back, puncturing her cardiac sac. Mrs. Mailer initially told doctors that she had fallen on broken glass. Later in the intensive care unit, she told police that her husband had stabbed her. While Mailer was charged with felonious assault and committed to Bellevue Hospital for psychiatric observation. In my opinion, Norman Mailer is having an acute paranoid breakdown with delusional thinking and is both homicidal and suicidal, the doctor who first treated Mrs. Mailer wrote in a medical report to the judge. In court, Norman Mailer argued that, naturally, I have been a little upset. 
but I have never been out of my mental faculties. Well, the judge disagreed. Mailer was released from Bellevue after 17 days, and in November 1961, after pleading guilty to a reduced charge of third-degree assault, he received a suspended sentence. The couple divorced the next year. Uh, Adele Carolyn Morales was born in 1925 in Brooklyn, and after graduating from Washington Irving High School in Manhattan, uh, she moved to a cold-water flat and earned a living making papier-mâché models for department store windows. After the divorce, Mrs. Mailer, who had studied at the actor's studio, appeared in several off... But this is crazy. I don't understand this part. She appeared in several off-Broadway productions, including Mailer's theatrical adaptation of his novel The Deer Park in 1967. I, I, I guess they remained acquaintances. She also uh, appeared in a small role in his 1970 film called Maidstone. After their two daughters, Elizabeth and Danielle, went to college, payments from her ex-husband were reduced sharply, and she lived precariously in a rent-stabilized one-bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side. After he died, all she could say of him was, he was a monster, said her daughter Elizabeth. On a walk around her neighborhood in 2007 with a writer on assignment for the Times, Mrs. Mailer said to no one in particular, this is Norman Mailer's wife. It's riches to rags, honey. Riches to rags. Adele Mailer, 90, married to Norman Mailer, stabbed by him in 1960. Well, I thought this was just an amazing story. This well, kind and of I stuff love, doesn't I love the much. word use. She lived precariously. And I'd forgotten that Norman Mailer basically thought he could do anything. Well, I'm a, I'm a great novelist. Well, and we forget, you know, The Naked and the Dead was, a, a, 1948 was a tremendous sensation. He came out of nowhere and was a, claimed as one of the great the great, great novelists, perhaps one of the great American novelists, that he said, well, I'll write some plays, I'll make some films, I'll run for mayor. Could, thought he could do anything. Talk about delusions of grandeur and homicidal and suicidal tendencies. Yeah. What if he had killed her? I mean, it, that came close to happening. I mean, you know, if the knife had been just a little bit to the right or the left or deeper. Could have been an entirely different future for Norman yeah. Mailer, for sure. Uh, anyway, part of that was written by William Grimes, who is an esteemed colleague of our friend Marguerite Fox at the New York Times. Roscoe, it's been a pleasure, as always, being with you at the Booth One podcast. We've covered a lot of ground today. We did. Enjoy the uh, holidays. Hopefully, I will see you before Christmas. Is but there a possibility not. you won't see me before Christmas? Possibly. Well, well it's possible that our, re- our listeners won't hear us before Christmas uh, again. Before that's Christmas. True. But we'll see. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate your listenership. Join us again next time for another episode of Booth, Booth One. Take care, everyone. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays.